Welcome to Work and Play, the podcast of Consangi Brooks, Smith & Profit. Here we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basford-Wilson. With me today is my co-host and partner, Sherry Silverman. Sherry, I'm going to start out on a personal note. Today is the first day of school for my boys. Here in St. Louis, it is a purely virtual online school situation. So the first day of school is happening at a table in the living room right now. Mm, I feel you. My, my kids are starting tomorrow. So this year might not quite be the same for all of us, but for those who are starting school or who have kids, relatives, or friends starting school, good luck. I am thinking happy thoughts in your direction. Yeah. May the force be with you. (laughs) All right, Sherry, I know that you have written and revised a few handbooks in your time. Yep. Like one or two every month since so forever. I think you're trying to say that we see them fairly often. Yeah, that was a nice way of saying it. We do. And that's allowed us to develop some, you know, opinions about the good, bad, and the ugly of handbooks, wouldn't you say? True statement. So if we're going to start talking about handbooks today, where shall we begin? Let's start with size. Size does matter. (laughs) I think maybe you should explain that one. I know, all that exciting. There are exceptions to the rule, but I generally start to wonder what's going on when I see a handbook that is several hundred pages long. When a handbook gets that big, I often find that it's just attempting to do too much. Perhaps it's turned into an operations manual describing how to actually perform the nuts and bolts of various jobs, or perhaps it quotes all the applicable employment statutes verbatim. Whatever the reason, often the handbook has become just too big to be a useful resource guide for employees. And really, that's one of the primary goals after all. I agree. There are certainly situations where a lengthy handbook might be helpful and appropriate. Perhaps you're an international employer in a highly regulated industry. However, generally speaking, I like to see a handbook that gets in, covers what needs to be covered, and gets out. Exactly. There are some things you absolutely need to have, but when you start including three pages of bullet points identifying each and every circumstance that can get an employee fired, I personally think you've gone too far. You know, Sherry, you mentioned something a second ago that I think is worth highlighting. You said one of the primary goals of a handbook is to be a useful resource for employees, and I totally agree with that. In your mind, what are some of the other goals of a good handbook? That's a fair question. Foundationally, a good handbook provides accurate information about your company. It tells employees what days are company holidays. It tells them what to do and who to talk to if they have a question or an issue with a paycheck. It reminds them that they're at-will employees in the states that permit at-will employment. And it'll describe how employees can ask for time off or what leave laws are applicable, as well as things like company safety rules and requirements. Of course, it should also give accurate information about applicable laws. It might be a professional hazard, but we we do really appreciate accuracy. One of my personal pet peeves is when I see a handbook that describes the law 
as it was five or 10 years ago, like an old version of the Family and Medical Leave Act or, you know, something else that otherwise misstates the law. Yeah, that's never a good thing to try to stay away from that, which brings us to another goal of a good handbook. It should be up to date. Oh boy, I can feel the laughter and skepticism from here. HR and in-house friends, we see you. We know that you have five fires on your desk on a good day. And we understand that a handbook is often not your top priority. We get it. We truly do. However, employment law is ever evolving and your handbook has to reflect that. Yeah, here's a recent example. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a landmark decision and held discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity is a form of sex discrimination prohibited by Title VII. So if your handbook didn't already include language prohibiting discrimination and harassment on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, then that's language that you should consider adding now. Got it. So to recap thus far, a good handbook is accurate, it's updated, and it's of manageable size. While we don't want to include the proverbial kitchen sink in the handbook, what overarching categories of stuff do we really want to see, Sherry? Off the top of my head? All right. Uh, Let's see here. I always want to see EEO language and policies prohibiting harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, and how to report any issues that employees see or experience. I also want to see what I'll call wage and hour language, the where, when, and how of getting paid. And this part is very important. Here's what to do if you have a question or think there's been an error. Okay, I'm with you thus far. Yeah, it's not just that you know, those policies are worthwhile and show that the employer is doing the right thing. But having such language in your handbook can create a legal defense if you're faced with a harassment or unpaid wage complaint. Well, if you put it like that, I'm certainly in favor of including language that can help a company defend against a lawsuit. What else do you want to see? I also want to see code of conduct language. It doesn't have to have the title code of conduct, but I want to see attendance requirements and safety rules. All the stuff that you can point to and say, hi, Mr. Employee. Remember, we told you that we expected X, Y, and Z from you. We need you to do your job, please. (laughs) And if I may jump in on the subject of conduct, we also want to see a drug policy, right? I have written so many drug testing policies this year because of the rapid legalization of marijuana at a state level for recreational or medicinal use. Yeah, talk about an area that can cause some stress for multi-state employers. Right? We could do an episode where all we talked about was marijuana. Actually, we will probably do that sometime soon, don't you think, Sherry? Yes, let's definitely do that. All right. But anyway, employers certainly need to think through the issues related to drug testing and substance abuse in light of the applicable federal, state, and local laws. Good call. Another category we want to see is what I'll call benefits and leave language. Things like high-level description of what type of insurance is offered and to whom, workers' comp language, family medical leave act language if you know you're an eligible employer, and things of that nature. Agreed. 
I also personally like it when handbooks cover communications and technology issues in a practical, realistic way. In this day and age, you can't pretend employees aren't going to use their personal technology for business purposes. And so I think a good handbook should cover that. The handbook should set expectations for what employees can and can't do on company time and equipment. For example, is the occasional personal call okay? Is checking social media during the day going to get you written up? Can employees bring a cell phone to the production floor? And I also like to see language that the company reserves the right to monitor its telecommunication systems, and thus employees should have no expectation of privacy with respect to company systems and equipment. Solid points. And this is probably a good time to mention that your handbook may need to include some state-specific items. For example, some states provide leave to visit your child's school or domestic abuse leave. Excellent point. There are a lot of state-specific quirks that may need to be considered. Some states require that you pay accrued but unused vacation at the time of termination. And subjects like workers' comp, those vary quite a bit from state to state. So it is really important to know the requirements of the states and even the cities in which you operate. Exactly. And while we're at it, this is a particularly good time to dust off that handbook and update it to address some of the workplace issues we're now seeing in the age of a pandemic. For example, if you suddenly implemented remote work during quarantine and your handbook does not address teleworking, now would be a good time to add that to your handbook too. Good call. And while we're at it, there are probably a few other policies that should be updated in your handbook to deal with pandemics, whether it's COVID-19 or some future zombie apocalypse. Please, can we just pretend for a moment like this is the one and only pandemic we will live through in our lifetime? (laughs) I truly hope that is the case. But in the spirit of preparing for worst case scenarios, I think it's only appropriate to at least consider including a provision on business continuity, health and safety in the workplace, what's the procedure during a furlough, COVID-19 leave, all of that good stuff. Agreed. Or at least consider issuing a handbook supplement to address these issues if you're not going to do a comprehensive review and update the entire handbook at this time. Fair enough. You know, I think this has been a prime example of the type of practical, non-legalese advice that we pride ourselves on, Sherry. But can we talk for a minute about what a less good handbook looks like? (laughs) Okay, wait, how much time do we have again? Uh, (laughs) Okay, okay. All right. How about this one? Handbooks should be drafted specifically for your company. So it's not a best practice when the handbook is a template that you copied and pasted from something, you know, you found online. Wait a second. That's not good. Or are you saying that sometimes if that's happened or perhaps if that's what happened with the handbook you inherited, it could have unintended consequences like It's a bad idea for companies who aren't covered by the FMLA to have copied and pasted an FMLA policy into their handbook. I might need a moment to consider that. I know. All right. Well, while you're stewing that over, 
Let me explain, because that's actually a perfect example of how a company can do this to save money, and it could end up costing them in the end, because there have been cases involving employers that are too small to be covered by the FMLA, but you know, for a reason like this, they had an FMLA policy in their handbook, and then they end up getting sued for an FMLA violation, and they very logically tried to claim that the employee was not eligible. However, there's case law saying that that defense is not going to fly because they effectively created FMLA obligations by including this language in their handbook. Uh oh. I know, I know. It 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 definitely seems like it's you know, cheaper or easier just to get a prepackaged handbook, but unfortunately, one size does not fit all, and there's really no substitute for talking to your friendly neighborhood employment lawyer just to make sure that you've got the provisions that you need and you're really not including things that you don't. Fair point. And while we're on the subject of your favorite neighborhood employment lawyer, let's talk about the elephant in the room here, namely that you and I are company side employment lawyers, and we really want to see a handbook that we can give to the EEOC, produce in discovery or blow up and show to a jury in 80-point font if there is a charge of discrimination or a lawsuit. And if it's not a great handbook, you may have just created evidence for the other side to use. It's true. And if you're going to talk about the importance of a handbook when it comes to defending litigation from a current or a former employee, then you know we should note that It does bring us a lot of joy when the practice outlined in the handbook actually matches what the company does. (laughs) True. For example, if the handbook says that employees must call a certain number to report an absence for the day, but everyone routinely texts in sick and that's been accepted for the last five years, then I suggest that you might want to revise your handbook or retrain your workforce. I'm a fan. So we've talked about the good and the bad. I I don't know that you and I really see anything ugly per se, but what about our pet peeves? I mentioned one of mine earlier, but what makes you say, hey, can we talk through this section for a minute? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when I see statements guaranteeing that the company is going to take a particular action within a certain period of time, and I'll give you an example. When an employee reports a complaint of discrimination or harassment, the company will commence an investigation within 24 hours and give you the results in five days. That type of statement. It's a nice goal, but I think there are many reasons why those timeframes are simply unrealistic. Stuff like holidays or medical leave or plant shutdowns or COVID-19 induced shutdowns. And then you end up setting yourself up for failure in what's already a sensitive situation with potential liability. I can see that. Another one of my pet peeves, they're seriously dated gender specific or overly detailed appearance policies. Like women must wear pantyhose, skirts or dresses at or below the knee, and appropriate undergarments, while men must wear appropriate business attire. I might be alone here, but I tend to think that the word underwear generally doesn't need to appear in your handbook. 
but hey, you know your workforce. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So here's another one that I think isn't actually helpful in the end. I have nothing against policies that prohibit supervisors from being in a romantic relationship with a subordinate, but I have some, seen some that essentially require employees to report their supervisor and to HR if they do so much as consider flirting with a coworker. I mean, certainly there are times when romantic relationships should be reported, but I start to get a little uncomfortable when a handbook essentially says you have to turn in every single love note a colleague gives you and report it to management in writing. Awkward. That's a situation where I think it helps to, to play it out to the end because it is possible to take a good idea or a good intention too far. Um, finally, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that we do like to see your pristine and perfect handbook distributed and acknowledged. It's always nice to be able to say that the employee received the handbook and agreed to follow the terms of the handbook. Agreed. We like to end our shows with an amusing anecdote or a yep, that really happened story. Does anything come to mind, Sherry? So I heard of one once where a company wanted to include a no sleeping policy in it um, because I guess they had issues with employees sleeping on the job and they wanted to be able to fire employees for it. Okay. So there are a couple different things going on there. <laughs> I think so. Like, you know, I, typically you really shouldn't be creating a policy to retroactively punish an employee for something that they've already done. And also I, I question whether you really need a policy that tells employees not to sleep on the job. I, I just don't know that it's necessary. We can file that under the heading of things I didn't know I needed to say. Like, yes, I, I do expect you to be awake and to do the job I'm paying you to do. You know, being an employer is sometimes reminiscent of being a parent. Like, I didn't know that I'd ever have to say, don't put your underwear on the dog's face. <laughs> Or stop licking your brother or <laughs> lecturing total strangers about talking with their mouthful at a restaurant. Um, all of these are totally random examples. Totally hypothetical, right? <laughs> but you know something else funny, Sherry? We got to spend an entire episode on one of our favorite soapboxes. Why it's a good idea to have good policies. I found it very cathartic, personally. I somehow didn't think it was a coincidence. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Sherry. My pleasure. And, you know, thinking about it, I think we said the word underwear twice in today's episode. That might be a first. <laughs> <laughs> New goals to attain. <laughs> Before we sign off, I want to make my typical request of our listeners. As I've said before, we are a new podcast, and it would be wonderful if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, and especially leave a written review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts so that other people who are interested in employment law can find us. We hope you tune in again in a couple of weeks for the next episode.